Hello, and welcome to the Reconstruction.us podcast, the place where people from all walks of life discuss what we can all do to transform America into a more resilient, equitable nation and ourselves in the process. My name is Kimberly Miller, and I am the host of this show, as well as the website re-construction.us, where you can find articles and essays about the state of our nation and on making real change. Well, a couple of years ago, I had an opportunity to teach high school geography. It's not taught like it was when I was in school in the 1970s. Now we look at how history and society interact with our physical environment. That year I came across the incredible work of today's guest, Professor Brian Fagan, whose books on the effect of climate change has profoundly influenced the rise and fall of societies throughout history. I've asked him to join me today to share his insights from these important works. Dr. Fagan is an archaeological generalist with expertise in the broad issues of human prehistory. He is Professor Emeritus at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and he is the author or editor of 46 books, including seven widely used undergraduate college texts. Fagan has contributed over 100 specialist papers to many national and international journals. I've also asked Professor Vagan to give us a preview of his new book, which is due out later this year. It promises to be another masterpiece on past climate change and the implications for our future. Welcome, Professor Fagan. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to have this opportunity to speak with you. From my world, you're a rock star. So welcome. We're really glad to have you here today. Well, thank you very much. I don't know if I'm a rock star, but I've been looking at things like climate for a long, long time. Yes, and doing some phenomenal work. I I just enjoyed your book so much because in many ways, I, I felt like you really made history legible just on a completely different uh, level than anything I had ever really studied before. Can you tell us how you first got interested in the ways that climate has affected history? This is going to fascinate you because it's very different. Years ago, uh, back in the late 90s, when I was working on other stuff, I used to have coffee once a week with a group of writers who were really quite something. And uh, we used to throw ideas around. And it was in the middle of that big El Nino we had in the late 90s, and it was raining. And one of the guys said to me, why don't you write a book on the history of El Nino? And the others said, that's a good idea. And I sort of gulped, took it away, looked up a few things, and suddenly... It clicked, and I sat down and wrote, and this is absolutely true, a book proposal in one hour. And I sent it to my agent and said, what do you think of this? And she called me up and said, I sold it. Uh, Just like that. So we were in on the ground floor of writing about climate change, which was terrifying because there was very little. Because one of the things about my books now, I haven't written about climate change until last year and this year, is that my science is out of date. In those days, there was almost nothing known 
paleoclimatology, the study of ancient climate, was a new field. And of course, that big El Nino triggered a lot of talk about global warming and all the rest. So I really was right at the beginning. And I sat down and wrote this book, which was very well received. And then things being what they are, the publishers wanted more. So I ended up writing, I think it was four climate change books, Sea Levels, The Little Ice Age, a book on climate since the Ice Age. And um, it really was very fascinating because apparently I did introduce a lot of people to climate change uh, who knew nothing about it and wrongly was thought of being as an expert when I'm actually an archaeologist who happens to write about climate. A little bit. I don't, haven't recently, but I am back now on it. Well, I'd love to um, dive in if we could and go back and talk about a couple of your early books. The Little Ice Age you wrote about the period in world history between 1300 and I believe 1850. Um, yeah. What what were some of the key ideas that you explored in that book? That book intrigued me because then I really got into it for the classic uh, scenario, which, of course, was the ice fairs on the River Thames in London, where it got very cold in the 18th century and 17th century. And they had these big festivals on the Thames, which lasted for weeks. Uh, and I started there. But then I really started exploring it. And there were two or three, still are, two or three really good scientific books on the subject. And I went from there when I got into medieval agriculture. And what I hadn't realized was in the 11th century and around there, nearly all of Europe lived from one harvest to the next subsistence agriculture. And in Africa, where I spent my early career, I lived for a while among subsistence farmers like that. And a bell went off. So I wrote a book which covered medieval farming, the realities of it. And then the story sort of built. I got into sunspots. I got into pollution in London. I had a blast. And the book just kind of wrote itself. And was a great success. It's still in print. It was absolutely fascinating to me uh, because I had, you know, again, I having been raised in the 60s and 70s, this whole idea of how does climate interact with civilization was something that really wasn't explored at that time. So it was a very different lens and it just made so much sense. There was one thing you talked about in that book that I think is really an important thing uh, when we think about climate today as well as in the past, and that was this concept of the great ocean conveyor belt. Could you tell us a little bit about how that works and how it impacted uh, climate in that period? There was, unfortunately, he's passed now, a very, very brilliant pioneer climatologist called Wallace Brooker, who worked in the Lamont, and he developed this theory of the Great Ocean Conveyor Belt, which from our point of view uh, was a circulation of the ocean. And this triggered the Gulf Stream and with downwelling caused the Gulf Stream to flow. And if that shut down, uh, the climate changed. And this was a very central part of um, 
the whole Ice Age scene. And in fact, later research has shown that basically he was correct. I mean, what what was amazing to me about it is that it, for the first time, I felt like I could really see how our planet is really one living organism in the way that the conveyor belt really moves the water all throughout the planet and has such a huge impact on the weather that we experience on a day-to-day basis. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? What happened in the Little Ice Age, they think, was that there used to be, during the Ice Age, an enormous ice sheet, which covered, or series of ice sheets, which covered much of North America from the Great Lakes north. And when warming really started after the Ice Age, and this was natural warming, the ice sheets started to melt. And there was a barrier which was up at the head of the St. Lawrence Valley. And this barrier of ice broke and it cascaded billions of uh, gallons of fresh water into the ocean, which skated over the more dense salt water and shut down the Gulf Stream which was the upwelling of the salt and the, the, the water from below. And the result was that there wasn't the warming effect in Europe and the Little Ice Age occurred. This is a quite popular theory. So as this change occurred and we had this Little Ice Age period, what effect did that have on civilizations at that time? Again, between 1300 and 1850? The, the big danger with all this climate change stuff is to say a drought caused the collapse of X civilization or catastrophic warming caused. It's much more uh, complicated than that. Think of throwing a pebble into an absolutely calm pond, which is like a mirror. There's a plop. And then winds radiate out from the point of impact and gradually disperse. It's not the actual El Nino or whatever it is that causes it. It is the social, economic, political, and environmental consequences of this. Mm. And it's very complex, extremely complex. And the classic example of this is probably ancient Maya civilization, a very complicated, sophisticated, brilliant civilization uh, in Central America, in the Yucatan in particular. And in the 10th century, there were, and they now know these from spiliothems, which are very small layers in stalagmites in caves. They know that there were a series of very serious drought cycles. Now, that civilization was with an incredibly high population density in this tropical forest lowland. And the population was worrying that it was a society full of haves and have-nots, and the haves were very exploitative. And all of this happened when the droughts came. When the droughts came, agricultural productivity dropped. But the social and economic consequences, there was endemic warfare, uh, there was starvation. People who lived in these large centers like Tikal split off and went back to their ancestral villages. Mm. And there was a very complex set of dispersions which happened. And much of 
Maya civilization imploded. It didn't vanish. It didn't collapse. It transformed itself back into something focused further north and also focused more on villages. Very complex processes, which we're only now just beginning to understand. Mm -hmm. And this process of change and collapse occurred in different societies at different times. And an awful lot of it was due to environmental over-exploitation. You've got in Southeast Asia, Angkor Wat. Have you been to Angkor Wat? If you have a chance, go. It is staggering. It is so big. And this whole civilization flowed to the center. Everyone who lived there, millions of people, served the king. But when the droughts came and society was unable to maintain the waterworks that nourished the rice, they ran into trouble. And the only solution was dispersal. And that's the sort of thing that happens. Fascinating. I remember, um, I believe it was in the Great Warming, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the examples that you gave in terms of how climate change had this kind of impact was also about the history of Genghis Khan and uh, some of the expansion that happened or that he really implemented. How did you see climate affecting that need to expand out from their current lands? It's fascinating because what you're looking at are desert environments. And I'm going to give you one of a general reply to this because what happens when you get even a modest amount of rainfall in a desert, it tends to bring people in. It can be game, it can be hunters, it can be cattle herders. Did you know that there were cattle herders in the Sahara in 6000 BC? There were big semi-arid grasslands and lakes. When And the desert kind of sucked people in like a pump, it pumped people in. But then the desert began to dry up and it expelled the people, and they moved to the side. And it is thought that one of the things that happened was that the drying of the desert moved herders into the Nile Valley and was one of the causes of the rise of the Egyptian, ancient Egyptian civilization. Same thing with Genghis Khan. When there's water, and he depended on cattle and horses, the desert sucked people in. When it dried up, they moved. What did he do? He moved onto the settled lands and he expanded. And a great deal of the history of nomadic societies in Eurasia was due in part, in part, to the pump. Mm. To that <laughs> ebb and flow of water. And but this is a very simplistic explanation, but it's very complex and we don't know much about it. But the, the idea of a desert pump is, is true and it applies everywhere. Mm, interesting. You know, I've heard uh, stories years ago about what they call the Sea Peoples as being possibly the, uh, or a lot of folks refer to that as the Sea Peoples came and it it led to the fall of Rome when they invaded. As I understand it, they've learned in more recent years that those were probably Vikings coming down. And I wondered what influence climate change might have had on the Vikings' need to hit the waters and look for new lands. Do you think there's any connection there? It's an enormous complicated problem. And a 
historian, a classicist, has just written a brilliant book, Kyle Harper, on the fate of Rome, in which he invokes climate change and pandemics as major contributors. His theories are being very vigorously debated by fellow classicists. Mm. I think he has some very interesting insights. What you've got is a civilization based on Rome and Constantinople. Again, this is grossly simple, but its grain came from the Nile, from North Africa. And if you get a monsoon or you get an El Nino and the Nile flood is reduced for a period of years, what happens? Grain output goes down. And what happens? There used to be convoys of grain ships going up to Constantinople and Rome. What happens to the grain trade? People are hungry in societies where stability and stability controlling the mob, as they called it, depended on very regular rations being handed out. Think of it as a sort of social security. Uh, It was one of the many recipes for disaster. Add to that appalling sanitation, add to that no idea of how you controlled infection or the spread of disease, and there are all kinds of different factors involved. The Vikings, I don't think, were involved in Rome. They were much more, they went to Constantinople, but I think that was later. I really don't know much about it. But there's no question that the Vikings benefited in North in the North Atlantic from the medieval warm period when they were able to sail to Greenland and beyond. I mean, you could give a whole talk on this subject. Yes, Liz. yes. I I realize we're sort of trying to squeeze many hours of discussion into a single hour here, but but it I think it's not only fascinating but so important in terms of how. Um, you know, since climate change is such a critical topic for us today. And so I really appreciate your covering some of your work from the past, just so we can try to get a sense of how much we can really understand now because of the way that sciences have expanded and developed, um, how much we can really look back and see these kind of influences in a way that, frankly, just wasn't really talked about when you studied history until pretty recently. One other concept that you had reviewed in your book, The Great Warming, was about the North Atlantic Oscillation. And so I know we talked about the water and the way that the conveyor belt works within the oceans, but it sounds like another key piece of this puzzle is the way that the airstream actually circulates the planet and feeds the planet and also influences climate. Could you tell us a little bit about how that works? It's rainfall. That's the key. Ultimately, the two things that in terms of climate change are really important. One is rainfall and the other is drought. And the movements of the North Atlantic Oscillation have a profound effect on rainfall, particularly in the Mediterranean world, which is where many of the early civilizations were. And that is the major factor. You get a good year of rain in Europe, good crops, life is good. You get a good rainfall in the Near East or Middle East, ditto. But you get a cycle of drought, things happen. And when you talk about drought, there are really two types of drought. There's a drought which lasts a year, two years. 
Most farmers can handle that. They're used to it. They diversify their crops. They plant stuff that for one or two seasons may not be as nice as, for the sake of argument, maize, but it's more tolerant of drought. But when you get a drought cycle of 10, 20, 30 years, a century, it's a very different ballgame. And that kind of hydrographic or drought is really, really difficult to handle, particularly when you have a very centralized authoritarian sort of society like the Maya or Rome or Angkor Wat or the Moche of Peru. I mean, you've got really centralized societies who don't have the options that smaller scale societies have. What is it that makes those societies so much more vulnerable? A number of things. Without question, uh, the the most important, ultimately, is that people move into cities. And there are statistical estimates for, say, Mesopotamia in what is now Iraq, that at some point, something like 80% of the population thousands of years ago lived in cities. Wow. If you look at Egypt the relationship between people living in major settlements, even in Pharaoh's palaces and villages in the country were never lost. Those roots were critical. Hmm. And that's true of the Maya also, because life really ultimately depended on your roots in the village, which is one of the reasons why kinship and relationships between people and families are so important, because ultimately, If, say, you lived in Chaco Canyon, New Mexico, and you had family kin in a village 50 miles away, much better watered, your obligations to each other were such that they would provide you food or you might provide them food. And these sort of relationships are what make life tick. When you get into a city, it's anonymous, and you're dealing with issues like taxation and so on, storage of food, feeding people in drought cycles. And for example, in 2100 BC, ancient Egypt almost fell, fell apart, in fact, into eight different provinces because of a drought cycle of about a century. Mm. And the people who had the power were the local provincial governors, and they were smart. They rationed food, they closed their frontiers. And they were very strict. But the pharaoh, who was the central person, couldn't do a thing. And every pharaoh, once the situation improved and the country was reunited, paid great emphasis to two things, irrigation, increasing production, and food storage. Ancient Egyptian civilization lasted for another couple of thousand years. Well, it seems to me that this really brings us to looking at what this might help us understand in terms of our current situation. You mentioned that you have a new book coming out. I wonder if you could share with us some about your new work. And I'd love to just kind of dive into these ideas in terms of our current situation in the world. What's happened is there's been a real genuine revolution, not only in the study of ancient climate and what they're doing now, is getting more and more precise information about climate. I mean, in Europe, for example, now, they have detailed information on at least seasonal climate changes over the past 2,000 years. Tree rings, spiliothems, 
glacial cores, everything, what they call proxy, indirect views. And on the other side, a new generation of historians and archaeologists, not only collaborating with the paleoanthropology, climatologists, they are also really using the much more fine-grained data to get a very nuanced picture of what happened. And some of the historical research now is absolutely brilliant because they're really looking at the subtleties. And it was suggested to me that I might consider writing, in a way, a sequel, which covers the past 30,000 years. That is from the middle of the last ice age glaciation up to today. And I brought in a dear friend of mine and colleague, Nadiga Durrani from England, who is an archaeologist with a PhD in Yemen, who knows a lot about drought. And we've written this book, which is called Climate Chaos, which disguises these very subjects. And in the last chapter, we say, well, what have we learned? Because there's been a tendency to say, oh, the past's gone. And one thing we've discovered is that it is startlingly relevant. And one of the reasons I got onto this was I was asked to give a lecture on the history of emergencies to this emergency preparedness group. These are these incredibly competent people who set up mobile hospitals and are first responders. They're wonderful, very nice people. And I gave this talk and I talked about basically human behavior using Pompeii as the example with the eruption. And it occurred to me that one of the things that has not changed in our society is the way that we act, we react to disasters. And from this and Hurricane Katrina and Sandy and other things like that, I realized that ultimately when you come to recovery, the most important thing of all is kin family, groups you're a member of, churches, your own parish, your neighborhood. And it made me think about the past. And one of the most fundamental conclusions we drew is that in many respects, you can talk as much as you like about international action on climate change, which is extremely important. But ultimately, some of the most potent weapons we have are local adaptations to climate change. Thinking about rising sea levels and adjusting bike paths, for example, or preventing people from building in a watershed where there's going to be trouble with tsunamis, things like that. And an awful lot of these are decisions which are politically manageable at a local level. This was one of the major things we learned about in this book, was how important local adaptation is. And we've made the point that one of the most important things about looking at ancient climate change is it is about local adaptations to climate change. And very often it's these that work and not the big grandiose project. Well, it's so interesting that you raise this because I just recently interviewed Richard Heinberg from resilience.org. And he essentially said the same thing. You know, he lives in um, California and they experienced all the fires uh, this fall, summer and fall. And he was really emphasizing that it was the neighbors that knocked on the door in the middle of the night and let them know, hey, the fires are close to our houses now, that sort of thing. How did you see that playing out in past history? Same thing. 
Um, for example, if you take Chaco Canyon, New Mexico, have you been there? Yes, I love New Mexico. Fantastic. That was occupied at its height about a thousand years ago by at least 2,200 people. And there were many more there that came for the big set of festivals at the solstices and so on. And then sometime in the 12th century, there was a drought cycle and the population in the canyon dispersed. Now, notice I didn't use the word abandoned it. It the population dispersed because deeply entrenched in Southwestern Native American culture is the notion of mobility. And this depends on a number of things. One, obviously, the size of your settlement. Two, that you have somewhere to go. And in Southwestern culture, kin ties are enormously important, as they are in the Andes. They are everywhere. Africa, they are. Also, the ancestors, ties to the land. I vividly remember in Central Africa, where I spent my early career living for a while among subsistence farmers who, whenever they had a village meeting, invoked the ancestors, because they were the guardians of the land. So you've got those sort of ties. An awful lot falls into place. And one of the most fascinating things about society here is that we live in an urban society, which is fairly anonymous. I live in a small area where there are houses next to one another. I barely know my neighbors. Right. Kind of. And that's true for probably, honestly, for most Americans. It's very sobering. And this is probably one of the things we're really going to have to think about very profoundly, is how do we interact with people who are strangers and yet, in a way, are kin because they're there. It is fascinating and very, very difficult. And this is something where churches will have an enormous amount influence, as they did after Katrina. I mean, these things are important. I have to say, that's really what I took away from studying your earlier work, was it just really got me thinking about, about obviously, where we are today and what the implications might really mean for our future. I am deeply concerned, for example, about what's going to happen in California and Arizona, you know, Wyoming, Utah, all of those states that are heavily reliant on one river, the Colorado River, mm -hmm. which has been drying up for quite some time because it's so overused. Um, and I'm certainly not unique in worrying about these things, but I think it's so important what you brought to the table because it really helps us see beyond kind of our current moment and to think much more broadly and strategically about, okay, if this is, if we're already having these shortages now, how can we sort of play that out and plan for it? If we might be about to experience similar kinds of situations in the coming decades. Yes, and there's another conclusion which we drew, which I don't think we really pushed very hard in the book, but the fact is this isn't a political issue, although obviously politics get involved with it. It is an issue that transcends any petty political divisions. It is the question of sustainability, resilience, and survival. Yes. And that's an issue that really we haven't ever, as humanity, really faced en masse Dozens of societies are faced on a small scale, and some of the things they learned are immensely valuable. And the other thing, 
which struck us as just how little we know about, for example, traditional aquaculture. Oh, some of the stuff, say, the Hopi Indians know, uh, and the um, things that the California Indians know about native plants is amazing. And some of the stuff, thank goodness, was recorded in the 19th century. This is all oral. It's all in the head. But we've lost a hell of a lot. And the less list, the more we study it now, the better off we're going to be. Because these may often have answers to our adaptation problems. That's so incredibly important now because we are really so reliant on agribusiness. I mean, so few of us know how to even grow a tomato, let alone a field of crops, right? And it seems pretty apparent that those kind of skills are going to be really critically important in the years to come. You know, the other thing that really struck me and that frankly excited me about your work is that I kept thinking in the past when these things, you know, in these kind of epochs of a drought period or a freezing period, like the Little Ice Age occurred, People at that time didn't have any way to put that within context to, you know, be it was just sort of this is it's cold again this year or it's really hot again this year. And it seems to me that one of the greatest values of the work that you've been doing is that for the first time, we have this ability to look back over many, many centuries and to look at what the lessons are and then apply them in a way that can really help us manage what is clearly going to be a challenging future. What are some of the other lessons that you think uh, might be most salient for us in the coming decades? One of them, it goes right back into what we wrote about. And that is the fact that until 5,000 years ago, and certainly from most places until much more recently, all knowledge was passed from one generation to the next by word of mouth, oral tradition. And one of the most important things that we tend to neglect is oral learning. What you pass to your children, what your parents and grandparents passed to you. And it may be as something as prosaic as fixing a tire on a car, but it also encompasses far more, not just religious beliefs, but folk medicine, uh, knowledge of your property, you name it, and memories of other people, many of which have lessons and which define your character in a way. And these sort of memories have become much less fashionable because one of the greatest qualities of many non-writing societies was storytelling. My business, to some degree, has been storytelling. I've done it for 60 years, and it never gets any easier. But it's great fun. And it's great fun to do it orally, and it's great fun to do it in writing. And the greatest challenge I ever had, and this is a slight tangent, but it will, I hope, make you laugh. One of the most esoteric things that I've ever written about was a history of beds. Oh, really? I, I confess I hadn't found that book yet. Now, well, go and get it. It's... Okay. 
published, believe it or not, by Yale University Press, which is pretty nice. Anyhow, no, no. Um, about five years ago, I was asked, believe it or not, by a management consulting company in Canada to give a lecture on the history of beds to a very small group of very senior mattress executives from two major mattress companies. And I did it. They loved it. And I happened to be talking to my editor at Yale while I was down in Atlanta doing this about another book I'd done. And he said, why don't you write a book on the history of beds? And I said, you must be joking. And he said, I'm deadly serious. So I pulled in Nadia and we wrote a book called What We Did in Bed, A Horizontal History, which is short, but it turned out to be absolutely fascinating and a very difficult subject to write about. And this really brought home to me how an awful lot of history isn't written down because it was passed verbally to people. How did you make a Victorian bed? They've experimented now, but in those days they didn't. How do you properly clean a kitchen? How do you plant peas properly or tomatoes? Or how do you sail a boat and catch fish? All of this was passed from one generation to the next. And that's, of course, the relic of apprenticeship is the relic of that and so on. And this book, which also delves into pop culture, which is my friend Nadia, who has a, a son and she knew childbirth and all that, um, there's far more to a bed than sleeping and sex. And this has absolutely been fascinating and was a very interesting, formative learning process for the climate book, actually. And people look at me and say, were you insane? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. How the heck did you get on that topic? Well, please, um, again, thank you so much for your time. I definitely want to give you a chance to tell us more about how we can get this new book and when it will be out and anything that you could share with us about how folks can learn more about you and your work. Okay, the... The book is called, at the moment, now this is all very early, we've only just delivered the manuscript. The latest information I have is that it will be published in September 2021, and it's going to be called Climate Chaos, I think. It's by Nadia Durrani and I. If you want to find out more about my books, oddly enough, the best place to go is Amazon, because all the books that are in print are listed there. The joy of my job is that I get deeply immersed in a subject for a couple of years, write about it, and then I walk away and do something different. I'm in the middle of debating what I'm going to do next. I haven't a clue. <laughs> It'll happen. Well, whatever it is, I have no doubt it's going to be fascinating. Well, thank Professor, you. thank you again so very much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, I really look forward to talking more in the future. I hope we'll get to do this again. This brings us to the end of another episode of re-construction.us. We hope you've enjoyed it and found it informative. Please do join us again next week when we'll have another interesting guest. And before you go, please don't forget to like, subscribe, and share this podcast. We have both an audio version on our website as well as this YouTube channel. And your passing it on will help us grow. Thank you and have a wonderful day.